Part of the allure of living in the city is the ritual of getting out of it, fleeing the hustle, trading in the crowded streets for open air. New Yorkers are famous for their summer escapes. They flock to the Hamptons, to the Jersey Shore, or to even more exotic locations around the globe. But for many of our ancestors, they weren't given the luxury of choice. They had to go north, into the mountains of upstate New York. It was here that they made their own luxury. It was here that they had the time of their lives, and in the process created modern hospitality, modern comedy, and some of the greatest entertainment the world has ever seen, not to mention a little dirty dancing as well. To know the full story of New York, you have to head north on Old Route 17, up to the mountains, and back in time. Welcome to the Catskills. We hope you enjoy your stay. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. An old Cadillac sputtered along the highway, guzzling precious gasoline as it ascended another incline. It was too dark to see anything more than the road ahead, but if it was daytime, the passengers would only have a view of expansive forest trees. The New York City license plate rattled whenever the car cruised over a fallen twig or hit a ditch in the pavement, complementing the rhythmic sputters of the struggling engine. Despite the isolated surroundings, the car was not alone on the road. Old Route 17 was the only way north, and at this time of year, everyone was headed north. Headlights flooded the road, illuminating the path. The driver gripped the wheel with a nervous energy. A few hours ago, he received the phone call he'd been waiting for. While the news was good, a paying gig, the additional request was odd. We don't care how funny you are, the voice on the other line had said. We don't care what the hell your act is. How big is your car, and how many people can you take up to the mountains? Luckily, the driver's answer was five. His Cadillac convertible was spacious and also had an oversized trunk. Perfect, the raspy voice in the phone muttered. You're going to be one of the most sought-after comics on the mountain. Grab a pen. The driver wrote down the addresses of the passengers he was to pick up on his way for a rewarding profit of $2 per passenger. Not an insignificant sum for the 1950s. With each pickup, the trunk was stuffed with more gear, costumes, props, all sorts of gimmicks. It was a peculiar entourage jammed into the Cadillac, hightailing it out of the city. The driver wondered what kind of entertainment his passengers offered. They could be comics, jugglers, singers, or some combination of all of these. He hadn't previously met any of them, and they hadn't known each other, but if all went well, this wouldn't be their last trip together. If they knocked it out of the park, there would be many more trips to the mountains. Maybe they'd develop a close kinship, sharing their experience on the road. Such was the life as an entertainer lucky or talented enough to be billed on the renowned Catskill Mountains summer circuit. None of them knew it at the time. But these passengers would garner enormous wealth from their time on the mountain. No, their name probably wouldn't appear in lights. Few of them ever did. They would never be that kind of rich, but they would all leave with a treasure trove of tales from the circuit. War stories of life on the road. For some of the entertainers, this was a stepping stone to worldwide fame. For others, this was the pinnacle of their careers. Either way, they made it to the big leagues. Just an hour and a half north of New York City, thousands of families had checked in to the hundreds of resorts, and come nighttime, they piled into the lounges and amphitheaters, awaiting the entertainment they felt they so richly deserved. After all, this was their hard-earned vacation, and they wanted their money's worth. 
From the perspective of the audience, they were getting rich as well, again though not in the monetary sense. While some had money, many were solidly middle class, but they were rich in the sense that their summer in the mountains would fulfill their wildest dreams. Their children would forever have fond memories of their youth. Parents would get an entire summer to live like kings. For some of them, the very idea of vacation had only been reserved for royalty. Their parents had not known this kind of luxury. Many of them grew up toiling on a farm in an oppressive country. They immigrated to the Lower East Side in Brooklyn, only to toil in the fabric and textile factories. Horrendous conditions and backbreaking hours just to put food on the table. Now look at them. Greeted by a hotel owner upon their arrival, the bellhops and concierges knew their names. Their days were filled with swimming, hiking, and any activity they fancied. Their nights were filled with toasts, dancing, and nightclubs. The greatest comics in the world would regularly leave them in stitches, or they would be serenaded by the next great American voice. Eventually, they would go to bed, only to wake up the next day and do it all over again. If stories are currency, then the richest people of them all weren't the entertainers or the guests. That title belonged to the staff, the bellhops and waiters, booking agents and instructors. Many were young, trying to make enough money to get through the summer and pay for school. But the life experience they would receive was more valuable than any formal education. While the hours were long and the work was rigorous, most would have the time of their lives, and they owed it all to the Catskills. Welcome to tradition. Welcome to the Catskills. Welcome to world-renowned resorts, to nature, nightlife, and family fun. It's all here in the Catskills, and it's all waiting to be enjoyed against a backdrop of spectacular scenery and fresh mountain air. The Catskills are waiting for you. One of the oldest and widely read tales of the Catskill Mountains was about a man who took a nap. Closing his eyes in colonial America, he woke up to an entirely new world. Rip Van Winkle wandered back down to town to see his British colony transformed into an independent nation. King George's portrait at the local inn was replaced with the face of George Washington. Most of his friends had perished in the Revolution. The world can vastly change in the span of 20 years. This is especially true for the Catskill region of New York State. Put visitors from the 1920s into the 1940s, and they'd be shocked. Fast forward them another 20 years, and then again to the year 2000, and they would be equally aghast. The Catskills rose and fell with such grandeur that each era would be unrecognizable to the last. With each wave of change, the rise was equally as staggering as the fall. Our main source for tonight's episode is an oral history of the Catskills. One which everyone, from the stars and owners to the bellboys and waiters, was interviewed. I'll highlight a few of my favorite stories, as well as the major players that put the Catskills on the map. We'll also try to touch on the rise and decline of the Catskill resorts, the economic and social forces that led to them, as well as the lasting impact of this region on American society. These goals are admittedly lofty and grand, but so were the resorts. If we travel back in time to the early 1900s to look around, we would see one thing above all else. Farmland. It wasn't the best farmland for sure. The weak soil, the mountainous terrain, the climate. But farmers could make do with cows and chickens. As Eastern European Jews came to America in droves, settling in the tenements of Manhattan and Brooklyn, many worked in the garment factories. City life was a harsh and sudden culture shock. Most immigrants grew up tending the land, which offered open space to roam. Now they were crammed into tiny apartments and had no choice but to inhale the smoky atmosphere of the factory. City life simply wasn't for many of them. They were farmers. Their parents were farmers. Their grandparents were farmers. So they scrounged up what savings they could muster and headed north into the Hudson Valley. They bought land. They built modest farmhouses and tried to make ends meet. But as we mentioned... The farming wasn't great. Luckily, the opportunity for extra income soon knocked on their doors. 
Aspiring farmers were not the only ones that wanted a reprieve from the city. Even those that loved the city could use the occasional escape, especially in the summer. The humidity, the crowded spaces, and the pollution mixed a harrowing cocktail of toxic air. Doctors of the time period urged patients to seek the health benefits of the open air. Quote, Swiftly, the message came back to the Lower East Side. The scenery was beautiful. The air was fresh and clean. The climate in July and August was pleasant. So people from the same region in Europe began coming up to spend a summer week or two. End quote. The farmhouses started subsidizing their income by boarding a few visitors from the city. The pay was solid, and the effort was minimal. The demand grew with each summer season, and the owners smelled opportunity. Soon, the farming cottages became small boarding houses. Then they became larger boarding houses. Eventually, they evolved into the clusters of cottages known as bungalows. The shrewdest businessmen among the farmers constructed full-blown hotels. Quote, The evolution of the region, especially of those resorts that grew elaborate and luxurious, mirrored, even crystallized, a twofold process. The Americanization of the population on one hand, and the impact of Jewish culture on the other. Vacation itself was an entirely novel concept, an American idea, to a population that had been historically impoverished and oppressed. End quote. But as they worked their tails off in the garment factories, or wherever they could find work, they began to move up the ladder and enjoy the freedoms and pleasures of their fellow citizens. While the Jewish immigrants were adapting to American culture, American culture wasn't quite ready to adapt to them. It was common for restaurants, country clubs, and summer resorts to hang a sign over their door, Gentiles only. America was first and foremost a Catholic country, and they sought to remind these new immigrants at every opportunity. But in the Catskills, they were among family and friends. They were welcome. They could make their own dream vacation resorts, and they did just that. No one epitomized the seismic shift in culture and exemplified all that the Catskills could be, like Jeannie Grossinger. Born in a poor village in Austria, her dad managed to raise enough money to bring her to New York when she was eight years old. But her family's financial stability didn't improve in their Lower East Side tenement. At age 13, she left school and landed a job in the same garment factory as her father, sewing buttonholes. By 1914, her father had had enough. He sold everything of value he owned to obtain a farm in the Catskills. He went back to what he was good at, tending the land. But as we mentioned earlier, the land was just not adequate for financial stability. The soil was too rocky, and the old farmhouse was in tatters. But they were able to make ends meet by taking on guests in the summer season. Despite the lack of heat and electricity, Jeannie's natural magnetic personality and some wonderful home cooking kept the guests coming. The success led to the purchase of a larger hotel, one with a sign out front, Grossinger's. Their hotel had some ups and downs over the years. Business exploded in the economic boom following the Great War. It lagged during the Great Depression, but in the worst of times, they managed to stay afloat. While her father was the original owner, most would admit that it was Jeannie that made it shine. Quote, Just as in Casablanca, in which everyone went to Rick's, so in the Catskill Mountains of New York, where everybody aspired to go to Jeannie's. End quote. The kind words that guests, family, and friends would pour out when describing her could fill a swimming pool. Comforting, warm, motherly, gentle, sociable, and affectionate, she made all guests feel welcome, and they kept coming back year after year. People recall her treating celebrities, dignitaries, and noblemen with the same manner she treated everyone else. She developed a prompt affinity with anyone she met. People loved the Yiddishisms that she would sprinkle into her speech. Guests were thrilled when Jeannie greeted them by name. According to an old employee, some guests used to boast that Jeannie made up their room personally. An incredible feat, the employee joked. That would mean she was the chambermaid for 123,000 rooms. 
Despite quitting school at the age of 13, the queen of the Catskills never stopped learning. She took full advantage of the wide variety of guests coming in and out of the doors of Grossinger's. Her family recalled, quote, Jeannie had all kinds of tutors. A charm tutor, people reading to her, giving her private instructions of all kinds. She took Hebrew lessons from a rabbi with some of the kids. She took dance lessons from Tony and Lucille. Tony taught her, but she didn't dance much, even though she knew how, end quote. This wasn't all she learned, not even close. She also had an English teacher, Spanish teacher, piano teacher, painting teacher, and an elocution teacher, among others. According to her daughter, she even learned how to guide a motorboat in Miami Beach while she completed reconnaissance of the first-class hotels along the East Coast. For many Eastern European Jews, Jeannie's propensity for leadership and multitasking was not unexpected. Quote, in the old country, it was the man's role to keep alive the faith, to study, and the woman had to sustain him and the family. So the mother ran everything. She was the provider, the nourisher, the feeder, end quote. Jeannie wasn't the only woman who ran the Catskills. Behind every successful resort was a woman who made the place sparkle. They greeted guests, organized the staff, and made sure everyone had enough food. One former visitor recalled, quote, when people checked out after lunch at Esther Manor, Esther Strasberg would give them a box of lunch to take along so they wouldn't be hungry in the car. That's the Jewish mother, end quote. With Jeannie Grossinger at the helm, Grossinger's resort achieved, quote, the rank of flagship of the fleet of landlocked luxury liners anchored in the Catskills 100 miles northwest of New York City. And she ruled with regal dignity a 1,300-acre domain larger than Princess Grace's Monaco, end quote. Yes, the Waldorf of the Catskills, as it came to be called, grew to encompass 1,300 acres. On this estate were 35 buildings, three swimming pools, a skating rink, tennis court, a ski slope that made its own snow, the first of its kind, its own post office, and its own airport. Even with all of this opulence and popularity, Grossinger's was only a cog in the machine. As mentioned, it was merely the flagship of an entire fleet, a fleet of luxury resorts that lined the mountains. The competition was fierce, and the showmanship and one-upmanship raged for years in every conceivable way. The arms race for amenities played out as it typically did, with one resort debuting a new amenity, followed by the other resorts forced to keep up with the Joneses the following season. But the more interesting arms race was for press and talent. Public relations, press directors, and booking agents made their names in the Catskills. It was under their spell that the Catskills became the forefront of American music, comedy, and even sports. We'll start with a brief overview of sports. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. All of our outdoor activities will be in full swing today They'll be voting on grossing the lake, swimming at the pool, golf, tennis, handball, basketball, volleyball, and all other outdoor sports. In 1931, the public relations man for Grossinger's, Milton Blackstone, had a genius idea. He wanted to invite Barney Ross, the lightweight champion of the world, to stay at the resort while he trained for his next fight. But the Grossinger family wouldn't have it. Boxing was a brutal, abhorrent, and violent sport. Milton pleaded his case and, quote, explained that the champ was an Orthodox Jew, he had a strict kosher diet, and he didn't work on the Sabbath, end quote. The Grossinger family agreed to host. Rumor has it that when Ross's smoky, dank Manhattan gym heard the news, they freaked out. The fresh air up there will kill him, they cried. It didn't. Ross would defend his title in front of the entire Grossinger staff. They made the trip to watch him on fight night. During Ross's training, all of the New York sports writers came to check it out, and they decided to write about the resort. This was press you couldn't buy. Grossinger's was soon instantly recognizable by name anywhere in New York. So began the tradition of hosting boxers training for the next blockbuster fight. By the 1950s, Grossinger's boasted themselves as being the training ground for undefeated heavyweight champ Rocky Marciano. 
Like the rest of the guests, he became part of the family. He once asked Jeannie's daughter to dance. She politely told him he didn't know how. He sought out the resident dance instructor to teach him the mambo. Other staff members remember Rocky as a, quote, lovable, shy, perfect gentleman, even though he was a little frugal, end quote. Since Grossinger's had Marciano, another famed resort, Kutcher's, hosted his opponent, Ezard Charles. Quote, on CBS TV, Edward R. Murrow, using a split screen for the first time, interviewed both fighters. It was Charles at Kutcher's against Marciano at Grossinger's. I'm Ed Murrow. The name of the program is Person to Person. And again tonight, we'll follow our live cameras on a couple of informal visits. We're going up to the Catskills, about 90 miles from here, where you'll meet the heavyweight champion of the world, Rocky Marciano. And then we'll go a few miles away to meet the challenger, Ezard Charles. They're training both of them up in country where, um, not far from where Rip Van Winkle took a nap. But there will be no napping next Thursday night when these two young gentlemen meet in the Yankee Stadium. We'll be ready to go in just 20 seconds. The list of boxers that trained at the Catskills was a pugilist's dream. Jake LaMotta, Max Baer, Jimmy Braddock, Sonny Liston, even the greatest ever, Muhammad Ali, had a memorable stay at a famed Catskill resort, the Concord. A former staffer recalled, quote, One Friday night, cold turkey, he shows up in the main dining room. Big as life, with that regal presence, all smiles. He walks through the room, Gray-haired old bubbies were calling his name. They loved him, and he loved it. Ali bent down and kissed the old ladies, shook hands with everybody. They all had themselves a time, including his bodyguards." End quote. While boxing was king during the glory days of the Catskills resorts, another sport came of age and was loved by the New York City crowd. Basketball traveled north to the Catskills for the summer season along with the residents. With the resorts sporting a plethora of outdoor recreational activities, naturally basketball courts were put in as well. The social directors had an idea to put on games for the guests to enjoy. Staff members of one resort would play the staff of another resort down the road. Sometimes they got full college teams to come and play in exhibition games. The competitive instincts took over, and each resort would fill their staff with ringers. College stars were given summer jobs as bellboys and waiters, primarily so they could star for the resort's basketball team and dazzle the guests with their talent and athleticism. For many basketball-obsessed resort owners, the standard question for hiring staffers was, how tall are you? Can you shoot? Can you dribble? Milton Kutcher of the famous Kutcher's Resort recalled, quote, We started getting into basketball around 1950. It gave us a new dimension. It was a morale booster for the staff and gave the guests something to root for, end quote. Kutcher pushed the envelope for talent on staff when the owner found a high school student from Philadelphia to be a bellhop in 1953. This may have been the first ever bellhop to stand six feet, 11 inches tall. The young boy's name was Wilt Chamberlain, and he would dazzle guests with his ability to put their luggage into the second floor window while standing on the ground outside the hotel. At night, he would dazzle them further with his sensational talent on the court. Wilt would go on to be an absolute force in the NBA, even tallying a 100-point game. This preposterous record still stands today. But before he suited up as a professional basketball player, or even a Kansas Jayhawk in college, he wore a Kutcher's uniform. Even as a growing, awkward teenager, guests claimed they could tell he was destined to be a star. The same summer that Wilt put on a bellboy uniform, the Kutcher's owner also hired an NBA coach to oversee the resort's squad and act as a counselor to guests interested in basketball. His name was Red Auerbach, and no one knew it yet, but he would go on to become the winningest coach in NBA history for many years. He also had a legendary temper. Despite the relaxed atmosphere and vacation vibe of the resort, the owner recalled Auerbach relentlessly taunting opponents, causing full-blown brawls between teams. The fiery competitor in Auerbach was absolutely in love with Chamberlain the first time he laid eyes on him. Quote, The first time Auerbach saw Chamberlain, 
moving along briskly in a bellhop uniform. Striped pants, short sleeve white shirt, bow tie. He just stood there and watched him walk. Just watched him walk. The kid was huge, but what Auerbach thought was incredible was how graceful he was for someone his size, end quote. Watching Chamberlain on the court verified his intuition. Despite being in high school, Wilt had his way with the best college talent in the country, schooling them on the summer courts of the Catskill Resorts. In one particular game, a rival resort, the Shawanga Lodge, boasted an all-American center from the University of Kansas. B.H. Bourne was a large, athletic, and tough-as-nails competitor. Auerbach expected him to manhandle the young, lanky Chamberlain, but Chamberlain dropped 45 points on him and shut him down defensively. This put Chamberlain on the radar of legendary Kansas coach Fog Allen, who outdueled practically every college in the country to lure Chamberlain to his campus. Wilt, who lived one of the most interesting lives a person could imagine, always looked back fondly at his time in the Catskills. Quote, Though it might seem like an odd pairing, by all accounts Chamberlain loved his time at Kutcher's and came to think of Milton and Helen Kutcher as surrogate parents. He got so into the Kutcher's spirit that he performed in the hotel's talent shows, acting in skits and plays put on by the guests, end quote. Chamberlain wasn't the only basketball royalty to lace up his sneakers in the Catskills. George Mikan, Bob Cousy, and Cliff Hagen, among others, passed through the Catskills as hotel employees or simply ringers for the basketball squads. The popularity of basketball in the Catskills actually took a slightly sinister term that had large, lasting reverberations throughout New York City and even changed the college sports landscape around the country. Fans loved to watch the resorts clubs play, and with some spectators being sharp, streetwise New York City people, they'd often put down some friendly wagers. One popular game was to pick the final score. Everybody put a guess into a hat and laid down their wager. The correct guess of the final score would take the pot. Eventually, a couple of wise guys, looking for an edge, approached the players before the game. If the game was already in hand, why not try to make sure the total stays at 85? If it did, the players would get a share of the winnings. No big deal. This was just a harmless exhibition game for fun. They were broke college kids. What's a little extra money on the side? This was the first introduction to point shaving for many of these college players. As they grew comfortable with this kind of arrangement in the summer exhibition games, it would eventually leak into their actual college seasons. In 1951, the sports world was rocked with the arrest of several members of the CCNY basketball squad. A small college in Manhattan, CCNY was the pride of New York City, with a legendary underdog and unheralded team of Jewish and African-American students that had done the impossible in 1950, winning both the NCAA and NIT tournament in the same season. Starting center and New York native Ed Roman had spent his summers in the Catskills as a bellboy. Occasionally, he shaved points to earn a little extra. As New York reeled from the news of their heroes succumbing to the lore of gamblers, destroying the sanctity of their accomplishment in the process, other colleges around the world were soon caught in their own point-shaving scandals. Not even the University of Kentucky, considered the premier program in college basketball, was immune to scandal. Famed coach Adolph Rupp once boasted to reporters, Gentlemen, I guarantee you this, the gamblers wouldn't touch our boys with a 10-foot pole. After a few of his players admitted to shaving points, sports writers joked that gamblers in Kentucky must have had 11-foot poles. Basketball and boxing weren't the only activities in which the resort owners lured their guests with stars and celebrities. Buster Crabble, Olympic swimmer, famous for portraying Tarzan in the Hollywood movies, was hired as a swimming pro. Florence Chadwick, the woman who swam the English Channel, was the swim pro at a rival resort. Another resort, fighting to keep up, found a cliff diver in Acapulco. Guests would crowd around the pool several times a day to watch his daredevil dives. Tennis and golf were no different, as resorts clamored to employ the services of the latest stars and Olympians. 
Olympians always had summer gigs in the mountains as ice skating and skiing instructors. The entertainment director at Grossinger's recalled trying to impress his mother with the famous people he booked at his resort. He told her he booked the world heavyweight champion. She shrugged. A wilder kaye, Yiddish for wild man. Forgive me for not pronouncing Yiddish correctly. He brought in a baseball star. A steckenzester, someone who hit things with a club. An A-list actor? A tumbler. Nothing. Finally, the first president of Israel came to stay at Grossinger's. That was when his mother finally accepted that her son wasn't a bum. Luckily, most guests were not nearly as difficult to please as the entertainment director's mother. Nothing kept the guests entertained like star power. And as the Catskill resorts grew in number, entertainment was the key to survival. Entertainment was so important in the Catskills that a job title arose with the sole purpose of keeping guests entertained between activities. The tumbler, a Yiddish word for someone who stirs up tumult or excitement, was crucial to a successful resort. The New York Times describes this role as a, quote, jack-of-all-trades social director who was supposed to amuse hotel guests with jokes, songs, and shtick that might be better described as slapstick as they sat by the pool, emerged from lunch, or headed to bingo, end quote. Exuberant social directors resort to every known technique to get the guests acquainted and to whip up their enthusiasm. One of the legendary tumblers of the Catskills was Lou Goldstein, who, interestingly enough, was first lured to the Catskills to play a basketball game with his college team. His first summer job was a boat boy. Quote, everyone would come down to the lake in the afternoon. The boats were free, but I figured out a way to get paid. There was a middle seat where you row and a back seat. If a guy was single, I took all of the screws out of the center seat. That way he could remove the seat and lie down with the girl. It cost him a buck. If he wanted added comfort, I provided cushions from the playhouse. That was a buck and a half. I made $1,500 for the summer off those boats." End quote. Goldstein stayed on at the resort working odd jobs, and while handling the spotlights, he would observe and memorize the comedian's acts. When he would take guests on a hike, he would try out some of the jokes. Quote, we called it an entertainment hike with Lou Goldstein. We walked 100 feet, I told a joke. We walked another 100 feet, I told another joke. I would get over 300 people to join me on hikes, end quote. While the hikes were popular, Goldstein would be more renowned for the simple children's game he would play with the guests. Yes, his Simon Says routine was legendary, landing him on the wide world of sports and other nationally syndicated television programs. All commands, all requests, all statements preceded by Simon Says, you obey any other commands you don't. And everybody, Simon Says, sit up straight. Tried for many of you, it's the exercise for the whole day. <laughs> Simon says, everybody, clap your hands once. Or a little pep again. You're out. You all did it, you're all out. You're all out, right? Those who didn't do it, raise your hand. Now you're out. Now they understand. The Tumblr was a stepping stone for many of the great comedians in American history. The list of famous comedians that got their start working at the resorts and cutting their teeth in the Catskill circuit is staggering. Jerry Lewis, Mel Brooks, Milton Berle, Bette Midler, Rodney Dangerfield, Buddy Hackett, Joan Rivers, Larry King, Jerry Stiller, Lenny Bruce, Sid Caesar, Don Rickles. The list goes on and on. This was a breeding ground for the greatest generation of comedians. Quote, as audiences grew tired of vaudeville, and their tastes became more sophisticated, comedy had to adapt, and adapt it did. Aspiring comics honed their trade in the Catskills, which soon became a laboratory for modern comedy." End quote. An entertainment director recalled the ever-revolving door of talent coming through his resort at Grossinger's. Quote, I used to have my own confidential rating for performers, 
Seven was the highest and four was the lowest. I kept my records on little index cards that I still have. Robert Merle got a six plus in 1945. He was pretty damn good. Jerry Lewis did a Victrola imitation lip sync. In my opinion, he wasn't so good. I gave him a four. A few years later, he returned with a young singer. They were good together. I gave them a seven. The singer was Dean Martin, end quote. You know, the Catskill Mountains, of course, was where my career started 37 years ago at a little hotel at that time called Homoac Lodge. And, and it was exciting for me to spend the greater part of 30 years in those mountains. As the acts got more sophisticated, so did the audience. The comedians needed to earn the crowd's admiration. The Catskill crowd had seen it all. Even when established A-list stars were flown in for special performances, they still had to prove themselves. One comedian recalled leaving the crowd in stitches at the end of his routine. They begged him to go on for a little longer, which he gladly accepted. They continued to roar. They asked him to go on longer, so he obliged again. The next morning at breakfast, a guest came up to him. I saw your performance last night. You were pretty good, but you went on a little too long. Comedians learned to push it to the edge, and sometimes they careened off that edge. The staff had a rating system for when an act bombed. Quote, if the audience thought the performance wasn't any good, people started walking out. There'd be a one-door exit if the act was fair, then two doors, three doors, and if the act really bombed, they'd use four doors. Ray Charles stands out in my mind, three doors. Maybe he was too hip, end quote. Comedian Sandra Bernhardt earned the title of greatest walkout. Quote, she went out, she worked about seven minutes, started insulting the audience. She got dirtier and dirtier and more and more hostile. The more she did, the faster the people walked out. It turned out to be the biggest walkout the Concord ever had, an eight-door walkout. At last count, there weren't enough doors for the people to walk out. End quote. Despite the stories of cringeworthy bombs, most often the guests were clamoring for entertainment. It was all about entertainment, and even the most ramshackle bungalows spent a fortune on performers, as well as advertisements that promoted them. Entertainer Sal Richards recalled some of these boarding houses and communes he performed at, the dank and humid dressing rooms, and the blaring heat on the stage. Once, when he attempted to sing a song, a giant moth flew in his mouth. Quote, I almost choked and I spit it out. That moth, I told the audience, does that every week. He loves that song. End quote. To keep up with the demand for talent and fresh material, booking agents rose to prominence. Juggling all of the talent and all of the resorts yielded some of the best stories. Of these agents, few had stories like Charlie Rapp, commonly referred to as the King of the Catskills. Charlie practically invented the Catskills circuit, booking talent for multiple acts and long-term deals. He even sold his contracts to other agents at resorts. During World War II, a gasoline shortage prevented acts from getting to the Catskills. So Charlie hid gasoline canisters along Old Route 17. When even this measure failed to guarantee their arrival, he started housing them in the mountains for the entire season. All of the acts, the jugglers, dancers, comedians, clustered in a single hotel or boarding room colony, all on Charlie's dollar. A performer recalled, quote, once there were a couple of empty rooms and two young secretaries checked in, they wanted to be entertained. Well, it was a show that will go down in the annals of show business. Those two girls got entertained by 80 acts who had no other show that night, end quote. Famous jazz singer Billy Eckstein remembered Charlie. Quote, you had to know Charlie Rapp because he was the mountains. Charlie could tell stories that could make a Broadway play, things that actually happened dealing with those hotels, end quote. Charlie was always a sucker for a card game, and the poker, gin, pinochle games with the entertainers were legendary, as were the after parties on Saturday nights when everyone was finished performing. They would often put on their own shows for each other, going on until daylight Sunday morning. My personal favorite Charlie rap story is when he once sat down at a card table and overheard two performers talking. That Mr. Rap is a wonderful man, one said. The other replied, we've got some great deal here. Charlie asked who they were. They explained that they were a dance team called Slip and Slide. Charlie asked why they enjoyed it so much. 
Oh yeah, that Mr. Rap is terrific. He pays us every week. We're having such a good time up here. How many shows have you done so far? Charlie asked. What shows? Every week we get paid. No one tells us to work. We eat and have fun and go and get paid. We're having a vacation. Charlie took a deep breath. Do you know who I am? No, sir. I'm Charlie Rapp, he shouted. And you sons of bitches are making up every show you owe me next week. Of all the fame and talent that came through the resorts, none epitomized the spirit of the Catskills quite like the young 17-year-old that headed up to the mountains in 1946 to sing with the resident band at Grossinger's. Quote, When I went out to sing for the first time in the terrace room, something happened between me and the audience. Whatever they were doing, everything stopped, and I was mesmerized by them. I knew the people out there were very rich. There were a lot of people who were real show business. Something happened. I never knew what it was. It wasn't anything that I packaged. I just sang straight from the heart. End quote. Whoever thought I'd miss you so? Oh, please come back, I beg you. Please, baby, please. What fools are we? The kid was right, and after playing a few summers in the Catskills, his reputation grew, and the right people were hearing him. One weekend, Famous singer Eddie Cantor was staying at the resort. His friends convinced him to check out this kid singing lead for the Grossinger's band. He was enthralled. He offered the kid a spot on his tour. He then called the record companies and told them, if you want Eddie Cantor, you gotta take Eddie Fisher. This is how the musical legend of Eddie Fisher was born. Eddie soon skyrocketed to fame and fortune. He was an instant sensation and teen idol. Drafted into the Army, he became the official solo vocalist for the United States Army Band. He made appearances on television in uniform. Upon his discharge, he had his own variety show. He starred in movies. One of the movies co-starred Debbie Reynolds. They fell in love. They got married. Where? In the Catskills, of course. Back home at Grossinger's. They had children, one of which was Princess Leia herself, Carrie Fisher. As with many teen idols and A-list celebrities, scandal eventually followed Eddie. He left Debbie Reynolds for another actress he co-starred with, Elizabeth Taylor, who also happened to be Debbie's close friend. Eddie's ride through stardom was classic rock and roll. Four wives, gambling and drug addictions, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But through it all, he always found time to come back home to the Catskills, where he began and where he always felt he belonged. The Grossinger's owner recalled, quote, After Eddie Fisher's huge success, we had a lot of other singers. People would come up to me and say, I've got another Eddie, just listen to him. Nothing ever happened with any of them. I could tell right away, although I never told anyone how. This is what it was. When Eddie sang, people stopped dancing. That never happened with anyone else. End quote. What fools are we who cannot see? Hopefully some of these stories have painted a detailed picture of the Catskills when they were the premier summer destination for the New York City area. Several generations recall their summer on the mountains as some of the happiest times in their life. A former guest remembered with affection, quote, There had to be 500 hotels and 500 bungalow communities in the mid-1950s when I first came up to the Catskills from the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. It was so vibrant, I thought it was the most exciting place in the entire world, end quote. Another claimed that as a kid he could, quote, name at least 200 hotels on the mountains the way kids could name baseball players and batting averages, end quote. On the road to the mountains, there was a sign post at an intersection with dozens of signs for hotels, like a diner placemat or a page out of the yellow book. All of the signs pointed in different directions, making it tricky to navigate, but the variety offered something for everyone. Despite the grandeur of the larger resorts, a vacation in the Catskills was considered by most to be economical. Blue-collar parents could afford a vacation for their family for the entire summer, 
the husband could easily return to the city for the week and meet up with the family on the weekend. This dynamic led to much of the shenanigans that crept out of the moral, family-centric atmosphere. Quote, One could meet young women, but they were always with their families and there would be no privacy. But at four in the morning, one could see waiters rushing out of the guest room in their black pants and white shirts, sneaking down a fire escape. End quote. Bungalow bunnies was a term coined for the wives that changed their demeanor and look come Sunday when their husbands headed back to the city for work. Quote, suddenly they'd become swingers. They were looking for the young guys, and they became hip. But come Friday night, the husbands would come up, and they'd turn back into nice, doting, lovely housewives again. End quote. Most staffers noticed that it was usually the male dance instructors that garnered the most demand. This scenario may sound familiar. In fact, one could argue it represents the Catskills' greatest impact on American pop culture. Patrick Swayze, dance instructor, lifts Jennifer Grey above his head to the tune of I've Had the Time of My Life, while an entire resort looks on with amazement. Dirty Dancing, the 1987 cult classic, is how most of the world pictures the Catskills. Many believe the movie's resort is fictional in name only, as the similarities to Kutcher's are too spot-on to be coincidental. Various employees from the famed resort were brought on as advisors during filming. While Dirty Dancing captured the spirit of the Catskills in the peak and glory of the 1950s and 60s, it also included a harbinger of the tough times to come for the mountain retreats. Towards the end of the film, the resort owner offers a somber warning to one of his longtime employees. You and me, Tito, we've seen it all. Bubba and Zeta serving the first pasteurized milk to the boarders. Through the war years when we didn't have any meat. Through the depression when we didn't have anything. Tito concurs. Lots of changes, Max. Lots of changes. It's not the changes so much this time, Tito. It's that it all seems to be ending. You think kids want to come up here with their parents and take foxtrot lessons? Trips to Europe. That's what the kids want. 22 countries in three days. It feels like it's all slipping away. Today, a trip north via Old Route 17 to visit the Grand Resorts is a vastly different experience. No one will greet you when you arrive or carry your bags. Familiar faces won't check you in and welcome you back. You won't have the same room you always reserved ready for you. The Olympic-sized swimming pools no longer include dozens of children splashing around in a joyous frenzy. Instead, the water is murky and bursting with algae. The grand dining rooms, where families, friends, and total strangers would all break bread, now lay silent. The elegant white tablecloths are all rotted and yellow. Moss now protrudes where there was once fine carpeting. This was the carpeting that led guests from the elaborate lobbies to the tranquility of their own rooms. Now that same walk doubles as a setting for a horror movie, the victim waltzing through an abandoned and haunted hotel. Every good haunted house has its ghosts, and the ghosts of the Catskills are plenty, and these ghosts have incredible stories to tell. So what caused all the elegance, all the entertainment, all the stories and coming of age to slip away? What caused the bustling luxury resorts that once housed the best and the brightest to crumble to the ground? The owner from Dirty Dancing only captured a portion of the problem, but the full story can be simplified into the three A's, air conditioning, airlines, assimilation. Guests clamored to get out of the city in the summer because of the unrelenting heat. The rise of air conditioning depressed the need for milder summer climates. By the late 1970s, air travel had become mainstream and affordable. With the option to go anywhere in the country, fewer families dedicated their entire vacation to upstate New York. Finally, assimilation. In a documentary on the Kutcher's Resort, a member of the Kutcher family described the legendary getaway as the third act from Fiddler on the Roof. What he meant was that the Eastern European Jewish fought the poverty of the old world, survived the horrors of the Great Wars, and made it to America for a better life. Their arrival in the Catskills, an embracement of the American leisurely pastimes, 
represented their assimilation to their new home, and the shedding of many customs of the old world. But as the Jews assimilated to American culture, America absorbed them as well. Gone were the days of overt anti-Semitism and Gentiles-only signs at country clubs. With the rest of the country opening up to them, they sought new beginnings in the South and in the West. Miami and Los Angeles offered opportunity and year-round sunshine. The owner from Dirty Dancing was right. It was all slowly slipping away. While the days of the giant, luxurious family resorts may be gone, the Catskills will continue to reinvent itself, like it always has. As the New York Times notes, quote, the Catskills have had more comebacks than Tony Bennett, end quote. While the conformity of the 1950s faded into the vastly different 1960s, the Catskills was still front and center, hosting the Woodstock Music Festival. As the free love era faded, the Catskills changed again. Quote, in recent years, visitors from New York City have set up cafes, bars, woodworking shops, art studios, breweries, and writing residences that many hope will bolster an economy that is still reeling from the last recession of 2008, end quote. The art and hipster crowd from Brooklyn is now making consistent trips up the mountains, with various distilleries and breweries setting up shop to accommodate them. Some of the remnants of the luxury hotels have been purchased with the intention of repurposing them as yoga retreats and spas. Despite the changes, the Catskills will always have one thing going for it that can't be torn down. It's history. You can travel the whole world over. It's beauty to explore. The Sullivan County Catskills will make you love New York. With all the treasures and the pleasures any wonderland can offer. It's a little bit like heaven, only closer. A little bit like heaven. The Sullivan County Catskills, where the world's great resort hotels bid you a warm welcome. Only closer. Thank you for listening to WDNXM. This concludes tonight's broadcast from the Triangle in Hoboken, New Jersey. Portions of what you just heard were previously recorded and transcribed. On behalf of the entire staff, we wish you a good night. This is WDNXM signing off. And now, our national anthem.